This is your host, Samuel Hansen. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 19, from acmescience.com. My guest on today's episode is Dr. Keith Devlin, NPR's math guy, author of multiple books, as well as the co-founder of the H-Star Institute at Stanford University. We talk a lot about a bunch of different topics, including just how math should be taught in video games. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's episode is Keith Devlin, Senior Researcher uh, for the Center of Study and Lang- of Language and Information, Co-Founder Executive Director of H-Star Institute at Stanford University, and Co-Founder and Executive Committee Member of Media X, also at Stanford. Dr. Devlin, it is a pleasure to speak with you. Nice to be with you, Samuel. Uh, now, I, I want to get the, the most important question out of the way right in the beginning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you did a bit uh, for NPR and Weekend Edition about penalty kicks. So mm-hmm. have you been watching the World Cup, and what have you thought of it so far? Um, I've actually spent the last uh, couple of weeks traveling through Europe, mostly in Italy. In fact, I was in Italy when Italy got knocked out of the World Cup. Um, but I didn't have access to, uh, to television most of that time. So I was uh, unable to watch, um, I actually didn't watch any game all the way through. So uh, I'm probably the worst person in the Western <laughs> world, to, or in the world in general, to ask about the World Cup this year. Well, well that, that's okay. It's just, I yeah. mean, you, I've, I'm, I've been obsessive about it this time around. And I figured, you know, since you did an NPR thing on, on penalty kicks. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's an interesting, I guess it, just from reading the scores and who's got knocked out and when, I guess... Um, one mathematical lesson to learn from this year's World Cup is that unexpected things happen all the time. <laughs> That's a very important lesson for, uh, for mathematicians to pass on. Uh, now, you are originally from Hull, is that correct? Hull in England, that's correct, yeah. Right, and so, when, when, you were, when you were a child in Hull, uh, what, what uh, made you decide or what originally propelled you on to thinking about studying mathematics? Oh, I, if I go back to... Well, first of all, at, at the elementary school level, I was terrible at mathematics. I was the last child in a class of 35 or so to learn my multiplication tables. I, I really sucked at arithmetic. Uh, didn't like it. I was the classic kid who didn't like mathematics and didn't see the sense of it. Um, and what really changed me, and it was, a, it was a period of several years before I decided I did like mathematics, but in, I was due to change from the elementary school. In England, back in those days, there was a thing called the 11 plus, which meant at the age 10 and a half or 11, you took an ex- a national exam, and based on that, you either went on to schooling high school system that was designed to lead you on to university, or else you went to a, a different kind of high school that was meant to just prepare you for the workforce. And so this was a, a big high-stakes test, and the year I was due to take it, um, the Russians put Sputnik up. This was 1958, 57, 58. And when Sputnik went up, as a young kid who was interested in science fiction and uh, um, just general issues of, 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 of space travel and that kind of thing, 
the, the realization that the space age was about to dawn, that people were beginning to put things out into space, so excited me that I decided there and then as a ten and a half year old young young kid that I wanted to go on and be a space scientist. I wanted to be part of this new frontier of space exploration, um, you know, which, which was quite a leap because all the Russians had done was put up this little little sphere that just beeped a signal, but it was clearly a galvanizing moment. And so when I did, I passed that examination and, and went on to, uh, to the school that was meant to prepare me for university many years ago from then. Um, when I went to that high school, I went in thinking, I want to be a physicist. I want to go into physics and... And, and, and get into space science. Um, the first thing I learned was that if you want to become a physicist uh, and, and get, becoming part of the space exploration age, um, you had to learn some mathematics and be pretty good at mathematics. And so that was the motivation for me to learn mathematics. And so I really worked my butt off for, for the next few years to master mathematics, to overcome my what I thought was a lack of ability in mathematics. Then... A few years later, when I get to 16 or 17 and I'm beginning to think about university, I had this unexpected aha moment. I realized that I'd actually fallen in love with the mathematics. Um, hitherto, it had been a, a utilitarian pursuit, something I needed to learn to do something else with. And suddenly I found that I'd, I really liked the mathematics. What had happened was I'd learned enough mathematics to realize it. it wasn't just a bunch of disconnected techniques for solving problems. It was this beautiful landscape, this coherent whole that human beings had developed over three, 4,000 years that was truly one of the greatest pieces of human creativity. It just turned me on. It really excited me. I began to see connections, and I realized that compared with physics and space exploration, exploring this human-made universe of mathematics was far more exciting and interesting. And so... Uh, from that moment on at age 16, um, I didn't lose my interest in physics, but I knew all I wanted to do was be a mathematician, and I've been a mathematician ever since then. Now, you, you did have a pretty big change from uh, the idea of studying physics to studying mathematics, since your original research was in set theory and uh, logic. I, That's correct, yeah. As a matter of fact, I, going through one of your... Uh, articles that was on the web, it, you said in the beginning, if it was not in the Hilbertian mold, it simply was not real mathematics. So uh, going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. going from uh, physics to uh, probably the least applied area of mathematics, set theory, uh, how, did, how did set theory and logic become what you were interested in? Uh, it was interesting. I, uh, so we go back to, I guess, 1967-68, when I'm about to get my, my first degree in mathematics. And that was the age pretty well when well, people didn't have personal computers, but the computer era was really beginning. That was when um, you could certainly, if you were at a university, have access to a university computer. And so I actually got interested in, in the idea of computers, um, to the degree when I thought that I would go off to university um, to, to do a PhD, I'd, I'd realized I wanted to go and do a PhD, I wanted to stay in mathematics. But because um, of the growth of computers, and I guess I'm the kind of kid who's always responds to big things in society, you know, I became a mathematician because of Sputnik and the space age, and then when computers came along as, as offering a new, a new domain of application for mathematics, I got very interested in going into what I thought would become the mathematics of computers. At that stage, there wasn't 
really much mathematics of computers, but it was clearly a, a domain where mathematicians could be useful. So I actually went off to do a PhD at the University of Bristol in this brand new subject that was really just beginning in 68, 69, called the theory of computer science, or theoretical computer science, or the theory of computing. Um, I'm not even sure if we had the word computer science in 1968, but in any case, I wanted to go on and try and develop mathematical methods to understand and to be able to do computing uh, at a much deeper level than was possible in the 60s when the machines were just coming along. So I go along to the University of Bristol in England, which is one of the universities, one of the few universities where there was some expertise, one or two people who knew something about the theoretical ideas behind computing. And that's what I was going to do my PhD on. However, at exactly that same time, this mathematical, pure mathematical subject called set theory, which is about infinite sets and infinite numbers, that had a huge explosion. Some, so it, it, huge amounts of exciting things were happening in the late 1960s in that discipline. And a, 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 one of the new faculty members at the University of Bristol had just come back from UCLA, having got his PhD in the United States. Uh, he was one of the world's leaders in this new kind of set theory. And there was so much excitement in that area. I just got swept into it. And so it was just the, 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 the adrenaline rush of being in a, a brand new part of mathematics that was exploding and growing rapidly that just sucked me in. And so I, I dropped the idea of theoretical computer science, which was clearly a subject that would take many decades to really come to maturity. And I jumped feet first into this exciting area that was getting all the attention within the subject of mathematics in general of set theory. And once I was sucked in and got my PhD in that area, I came out with my PhD with so much momentum in that part of mathematics that I was doing nothing else for the next 20 years. And I had a great journey for 20 years within set theory. It was only in 1980, 81, um, that I, I sort of, the, the, well, what happened in 1980 and 81 was this big rush of work in set theory sort of ended. It, it, it's not clear, I think, to people outside of mathematics that a branch of mathematics typically lasts for about 25 years. It's a generation of people, typically. And a new idea comes along, a branch flourishes, 20, 25 years, there's lots of excitement. Then you've more or less got all of the main results. It's just a matter of tying up the loose ends. And when set theory got to that point in the late 1970s, beginning 1980s, I began to lose interest. The excitement had gone. Um, and I found myself looking for something else. But that process from my PhD through to 1980, um, that was a great ride, and I, I had a lot of fun, and I was in on a, a branch of mathematics from the beginning to the, I wouldn't say the end, but to when it sort of it lost its, uh, it, its fieriness. And that actually explains quite a bit about why the few people I know who are still doing set theory don't sound nearly as excited as you just sounded describing it. Yeah, no, it's it, it's actually, and I I occasionally just out of nostalgia, I go back. I go to meetings where some of my old colleagues in set theory are still going, and a couple of things I notice is first of all, there are a few young people. There's always some young people come along, but mostly they're the people that were young when I started out, and they're now in their late fifties and early sixties, and they're just the older versions of the people I used to know. And they're still asking the same questions and using the same techniques they used 20 and 30 years ago. And, and that's fine if you like that. And for some people, that, 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 that's, that's nice. But it didn't work for me. Once the excitement had gone, once it was no longer a frontier, I'm clearly a, someone who responds to frontiers. And once it was no longer a frontier, 
I looked around for a new one and I very quickly found one. Now, do you think that there is that kind of differentiation between uh, mathematicians, the ones who want to be constantly doing something new, something that hasn't been done, and those who are uh, find a comfort level and want to stick with it? Oh, yeah, there's a big difference, and it's a personality difference. And um, there's no doubt about it that when you change fields, and I did change fields in the early 1980s, um, because mathematics is largely a young person's game, I mean, it's, 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 it's been said... It's not totally true, but it has been said, and it's, it's almost true, that a mathematician does his or her best work um, in the late teens, early 20s. Uh, and certainly by the time you're 40, you're unlikely to come up with something truly original. You might find new uses of techniques you developed when you were younger, but it's very rare, though not, not totally out of the case where it's happened, but um, it's very rare that people beyond 40... Um, do something significant in mathematics. In fact, the, the mathematician's equivalent of the, field, of, the, of the Nobel Prize, which is called the Fields Medal, that's restricted to people under 40 because it's meant as a stimulus to people doing new mathematics and it's generally recognized that the chances of someone over 40 doing something truly original in mathematics uh, is very rare. And, and when you find older people that do do something big, it's usually because the key ideas they had when they were in their 20s and 30s they finally figured out how to apply those ideas. So um, part of it is, is, is an age thing. Um, but if you do what I did, and, and when, you're, when you've had a 20, 25-year period in a subject and you look for something new, you have to accept the fact that you're not going to be one of the top guns in that new area. It's just the way of the world. You have to be one of the pack. And, and after you've risen to the top, and I, I wasn't by any means the best set theorist around, but I, I held my own with the best, and I could legitimately um, sort of go around and, and, and work with them and talk with them. Um, I had to accept when I moved into a different area that I was just going to be one of the pack from then on. I was no longer going to be one of the, the leading people who would be asked to give the plenary talks. Um, and that's something that some people just, um, you know, you, you, some people just like that feeling of being on the top of the pile. Um, and I, it, it's fun for a while, but it, it didn't sustain me. Now, you've mentioned a few times now, having found a different uh, area of mathematics. Was yeah. that uh, mathematical cognition, mathematics, and the theory of communications? Yeah, it's, uh, I got into it in a roundabout way. What happened was my, the interesting computers that I had put to one side because the, the, the mathematics of computer science hadn't really developed in the late 60s when I was beginning my mathematical career. I got back into that because by the... Um, Certainly by the 19, late 1970s, um, there were some really interesting questions that had come out of, of, of computer technology. They weren't really questions of computer science, but they'd come out of, com of, of computing. And in particular, I got interested in the idea of um, developing computers that could understand natural language and could generate natural language, sort of natural language understanding systems. They were in the early 1980s there was a feeling that that was a technology that was, that was on, the, on the horizon. And so I, I got really involved in looking at how you could use mathematics to, uh, to understand, or to try and develop computers that could, un, could understand language, natural language. And so that led me to come to Stanford um, in, in 19... Um, I guess I came in for a short visit in 85... And then in 87, I came for a longer visit to this institute uh, that you mentioned in the introduction of 
as I'm now a, a, a senior researcher in, Centre for the Study of Language and Information. That was founded at Stanford in 1983 precisely to try to develop mathematical theories, or actually mathematically-based theories, of language and communication, one of the applications of which would be developing computer systems that could understand and generate natural language. And so um, I came along in, in the mid-'80s and started to join that group. I've been a member of that group ever since 1987. Um, and that's the new area. It's, um, when it began in the 1980s, it was felt that mathematicians would play a major role in developing those theories. Um, not surprising, because hitherto, all of the sciences and the technologies and the engineering that we've had, mathematics has been, at the, it's been, a, it's been a linchpin. You, you, they're built on, all of our engineering and science and technologies are built on mathematics. We thought that a science of communication that would be applicable to building computer systems that could deal with natural language, we thought that that would be built on mathematics. Um, it's possible it will be one day, but I came to seriously doubt that. And I, I, I realized by the late 1980s that understanding communication and, 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 and language and the way, and to a degree where we might be able to develop computer systems that can deal with language more fluently than we have at the moment, that would involve mathematics, but it wouldn't build upon mathematics. It would build upon a whole bunch of disciplines, sociology, psychology, linguistics, um, even philosophy, philosophy of mind and philosophy of language. We, we found we got into, involved in deep questions of language and communications that the ancient Greek philosophers had, had mused about two and a half thousand years ago. So it's a, it's a different kind of discipline when you start looking at, at, at computers, looking from a computational, computational perspective at how you might understand uh, language and communication. Um, that, in that research I did with, with many other people into, uh, into the nature of communication and the nature of thinking itself, um, that then led on to me thinking in particular about mathematical cognition. What are people doing when they're thinking mathematically? How does mathematical thinking relate to other kinds of thinking? Um, what is the nature of mathematics and mathematical thought in general? So it, it, it all sort of evolved throughout the 80s and into the early 90s into the, the, these areas of communication and, and mathematical cognition that I now spend a lot of time doing. Hello, this is Samuel Hansen from AcmeScience.com. I am the math side of this conversation. Hello, this is Peter Ollett, and I'm the maths side of this conversation. Uh, so this is a message for listeners of Travels in a Mathematical World. Combinations and permutations, as well as strongly connected components. Okay. Uh, Travels in a Mathematical World is off air at the moment over the summer, uh, but Samuel interviewed me for his podcast, Strongly Connected Components, uh, and we enjoyed the experience so much that we decided to make it a regular conversation, um, and we've launched a new podcast called the Math Maths Podcast. Uh, you can listen to us ramble on about things that have happened in the world of mathematics uh, and things that have happened to us that week. Uh, do you want to have a go at describing that better? Uh, sure. I think I might be able to do something, uh, specifically for the people who are uh, more used to my podcast. Uh, this is different in that 
It has the same two people every single week. We're not going to deviate from that formula. And we actually talk about things that we understand, uh, unlike, say, the interviews that I usually do or the nonsensical ramblings of combinations and permutations. <laughs> okay, so uh, people can get this by going to Pulse Project, uh, who are at pulse-project.org. If you go there and look for the Math Maths podcast, you'll find us. Uh, we've also put links from our own sites. So if you go to acmescience.com or peterolet.net, uh, you can find those that way. And we hope you enjoy it. Uh, definitely go and listen. It's a fantastic time. Now, was it kind of, because you were talking about uh, langu- uh, understanding language using mathematics and then later on mathematical cognition, was it somewhere in here... Uh, in an article you wrote for the MAA, uh, How Do We Learn Math, back in, I believe it was 2006 or 2005, you stated that uh, instead of math is necessary for language, language is necessary for math because it teaches the idea of abstraction. Was it during this period that you came up with that idea, or did that come a bit later? Oh, golly. Um, those ideas, typically things I would write on the MAA, uh, website on my Devlin's Angle column. Typically, those were reflections of what I was thinking at the time. So that was probably the state of my thinking at the time. Uh, it's, it's evolved over the years. Um, uh, things I've written more recently are probably a little bit different, but um, although that column, which appears once a month, it, it covers a lot of things, many of which are just reporting on new advances in mathematics and describing other people's things from time to time. I, I, I write a reflective piece which really is a statement of what my current thinking is, and I suspect that was my thinking at the time. Uh, in that, in that same Mario, there was, uh, even though I, I understand what you're thinking at the time, but this was uh, very interesting to me. You wrote that it's important to be able to apply rule-based processes, or in other words, be able to have procedural mastery of a mathematics, say, of calculus, before you actually understand yeah. the rules, uh, the actual theory behind it. Yeah, that, and that, I, still, I still think that. I mean, one has to be very careful not to take any of these statements simplistically. I mean, we're talking about yes. human beings learning things. It's a, it's a complex domain, and it's, it's multidisciplinary. Um, but I still do think that. I mean, to, beyond middle school mathematics... Uh, you're dealing with pure abstractions. So you know, in the middle school, you're dealing with numbers and geometric shapes and things which are instantiated in the world around us. Calculus, in particular, is about infinitesimals. It's about infinitesimally small changes. They are not real. They are figments of, of the human imagination. Um, Bishop Berkeley, in criticizing Isaac Newton, referred to them as ghosts of recently departed quantities. So from calculus onwards, and, and, and pretty well all of university-level mathematics, you're dealing with pure, advanced, uh, pure abstractions, which are human inventions. And that means you're in a domain much more like chess. Now, how do you learn to play chess? You learn the rules first. When you've learned the rules, which don't make sense originally, initially, because they're sort of, they're sort of arbitrary, the seeming rules, and they are arbitrary. But after you've played with those rules for a while, you find you're starting to play chess. And it's not very long before you forget the rules altogether. And then you are genuinely playing chess and you start to become a good and a better chess player. Advanced mathematics that's not grounded in the world around us, which, as I say, is pretty well everything beyond the middle school onwards, 
It's a game. It's a game that humans have invented. We've invented. I mean, chess was invented and, and succeeded because people enjoy playing it. Mathematics was invented to do things in the world, and it's been extremely successful. So these games that we invent called mathematics, calculus, and differential geometry, and topology, and yada, 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 all of these advanced areas of mathematics, they are symbolic games that people have invented, which have survived and are pursued because they've turned out to be extremely useful in the world, but they are nevertheless games. And the way to learn to play a game is you have to learn the rules first because the rules determine the game. Once you've learned the rules, you can play the game. You really can't play the game until you've learned the rules. I mean, if you try to play chess by simply starting to play, I mean, you just got to you can't do anything because you need to know how to move a rook and, and, and how, to, how, how, how to move a knight and a, and a queen and so forth. You need to know the rules first. And mathematics is certainly calculus is like that. You have to learn the rules and you have to practice the rules without understanding them long enough until they make enough sense that you find you are actually doing calculus. Just as with chess, there comes a point where you're not following the rules anymore. You're actually focusing on the strategies and you're genuinely playing chess. Now, that seems to be the way that mathematics is actually discovered a lot of the time. I mean, uh, Newton and Leibniz originally developed calculus without knowing, uh, say, Riemann sums, which is, uh, you know, a very integral part of calculus now. So do you think that there might be a bit of a problem with the way that we end up teaching these things, since we do tend to start at least in the higher level math? Instead of learning how to play the game first, we're learning how to understand the game and then play it. Um, which way is the question going? Oh, no, I'm just, I just, uh, since, uh, since we start, uh, especially higher level math with the logical foundations, we learn the yep. theory and then we learn how to apply it. Yeah, uh, right, yeah. Do you think that that might be a bit of an issue, uh, given that uh, the way mathematics is was founded was they first learned how to uh, apply it and then figured out the theory. Yeah, it's it's really a matter of time. You know, it took. Um, first of all, we're talking about people like Newton and Leibniz. We're talking about extremely unusual individuals. Um, but if you try to learn these disciplines by exploration and discovery, um, first of all, only the very ablest very tiny proportion of people will, 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 will make those, those developments uh, and, and, and make the connections and, and, and make those discoveries themselves, even with guidance. Um, and secondly, for most people, it's going to take a long time. Now, the, uh, the reason we teach mathematics, advanced mathematics, by you know, begin with the rules and learn the rules is because that is much faster route. It's efficient, it's quick, and it takes advantage of a feature of human cognition that's one of our great strengths. So we, we, when we teach mathematics that way, we really are capitalizing on a unique strength of, the, of, of, of human beings, which is you know, the author Terence Deacon, the neurophysiologist Terence Deacon, referred to us as the symbolic species. And this is the ability that we can learn meaningless symbol systems um, very quickly. You know, we, we can learn to recite Jabberwocky, for example, and people do, you know, they talk about the slimy toes and yada yada yada. We can learn poetry, we can learn uh, to recite um, jingles, and, and, and we can learn to recite sentences from foreign languages that we don't understand, and actors do this all the time. Uh, we have this ability to learn sequences of symbols 
and remember them and, and use them. And then later on, they acquire meaning for us and we begin to understand what they are. That incredible ability is what we take advantage of when we teach mathematics by presenting the rules first. The fact is, it works for people. This is one of our great survival techniques in, in, you know, in, in natural selection. Is we, can, we are the dog that can always learn new tricks. And we learn most of those new tricks by, first of all, learning the rules and then becoming able to use the rules fluently and eventually forgetting the rules. Um, and, and, and that fast-track way to learning things that would take, that took our ancestors generations to develop, usually involving some of the smartest people that have ever lived. Um, a 17, I mean, you know, when I was at school, a 16, between the ages of 16 and 17, I was able to learn everything that took Newton on the basis of a couple of thousand years of experience from other people to develop. You know, Newton came after 2,000 years starting with Archimedes and was incredibly smart and invents calculus. But I, as a 16-year-old kid, because I'm taught the rules that we now have, was able to master calculus by the time I was 18. Um, so that incredibly fast way of learning uh, is what we are adopting um, through expediency when we teach mathematics that way. Now, the, the downside is, um, and, and it's only a downside in some ways, is that it, it, it means you can produce people who can apply the techniques um, very effectively, but they don't really understand them. And I, I know looking back that I aced my high school calculus exams. I aced my university undergraduate calculus exams. I didn't understand calculus till I was a graduate student trying to teach it as a TA to undergraduates. Um, so I was in my 20s, and I only understood it when I was trying to explain it to a new generation of undergraduates three or four years younger than me. And that, I think, is the experience of almost every mathematician. This fast way of learning is really good at getting us able to solve the problems and do the stuff, but the understanding does take a long time. Um, and, and, and that is an issue. Um, you know, most engineers uh, are incredibly good at applying techniques of calculus. They can, they can solve partial differential equations in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, without blinking almost. But if you ask them to explain the mathematics that they're using, they haven't got a clue. Um, and that's not their fault. It's just because the understanding does take a long time. Um, but learning how to use the rules can be done very quickly. So it's, it's expediency that gets us to teach mathematics that way. Although I think a lot more students might feel less worried and might feel less of a failure if we were much clearer about what's going on. You know, if we say, look, um, we have this fast way of teaching it that, that, that will get you to the point where you can pass the exams, first of all, and secondly, apply the techniques in your job or your career or your graduate studies, and you'll be very good at applying them. But you need to accept the fact that the understanding is going to take a lot longer. And in, in many cases, it won't come. In fact, most engineers never get to the stage of understanding it because they're too busy doing other things. I got to the point of understanding calculus because I was a graduate student in mathematics, and my job was to understand the mathematics. I was going to go on and teach mathematics. So um, it's really only the mathematics graduate students that need to, and, and, and in most cases usually do, 
develop the real understanding of calculus. The, the physicists and the engineers, um, they don't have the time to come to understanding, and quite frankly, they don't need it. Because they've got, well, you, maybe they need it, but they don't have the time to acquire that understanding. But I think we need to, it would be better, I think, if we were really clear to people about that. And it's, it's a matter of explaining the nature and the limits of human cognition. Well, I have uh, one uh, final question for you. I saw uh, you were on an interview slash panel. Uh, I can't remember where, but I, I saw the video on the Internet. And you were talking about some of the work, I believe, that you were doing with HSTAR about developing a mathematics video game to help with education. I was wondering if you could Correct, yeah. explain a little bit about what uh, that project is, because it sounds very interesting. Oh, yeah, that's, and that's focused on middle school mathematics. That's the mathematics that actually is grounded in the real world. And, and the premise is the following, that <clears throat> it builds upon an, an, an educational philosophy known as situated learning, which is that when you're talking about mathematics that applies to the real world, which is basically arithmetic, geometry, trigonometry, um, it's not this abstract stuff that's based on symbolic definitions. That kind of mathematics... Um, it's been observed over many decades that when ordinary people have to use mathematics in the everyday world in the course of their jobs or their, their hobbies or, or their sporting pursuits, they very quickly become extremely good at it. Um, you know, baseball fans become incredibly good at quickly calculating odds and revising the probability oh, yeah. of the stats of baseball. And, um, uh, you, you go into a... a any factory or something, carpenters uh, who have become very good at trigonometry and, and so forth. So people become extremely good at, at, at doing the mathematics they need on the job. And in fact, if you test them, you'll find that the, the mathematics that anyone needs to use in the course of their everyday life, where they've picked it up on the job, as it were, they're 98% accurate. If you test them on that very same mathematics in paper and pencil school format, that 98% accuracy drops to around 35, 36, 37%. So the message there is loud and clear and unequivocal. When people are needing to use mathematics in an environment of use, when it's used in a real context that's meaningful, people are very good at it. When you do it in a symbolic fashion on a desk, people are very bad at it. Now, most people actually don't need, in today's world, most people don't need to ever become good at paper and pencil mathematics. Scientists do, engineers do, um, mathematicians sort of do, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, the, but for, for the citizens as a whole, the mass of the people, what they need, and what they need much more important in today's world, is a really sophisticated, and I do mean sophisticated, sense of numbers, statistics, probabilities, complex issues. We are faced in our everyday life when we vote, when we buy things, when we make medical decisions. We are faced with really complex mathematical choices to be made, which don't, they're not mathematical in the sense of using lots of symbols. They just require a very good ability with number, with um, sometimes with shape, this sort of everyday mathematics. Since that's the important thing for citizens as a whole, and since it's important not that they do it on a paper and pencil, but that they can do it sort of in their head at a very intuitive level, the way that a baseball fan understands what a batting average is without ever having to write anything down, they just know what these numbers mean. Um, the best way to develop that crucial ability 
is to develop it using situated learning, to develop it in real environments. Now, what's the best way to find lots and lots of different real environments without taking a whole class of people out into the marketplace, out into the factory and so forth? You use simulation. You know, the way we train aircraft pilots, the way we train soldiers, the way we train um, surgeons, the way we train lots of people these days to do things is we use simulators. The way to teach everyday mathematics is a simulator. A digital simulator is a video game. So um, the best way and the most natural way to develop the everyday mathematical skills that people need, and it's basically the middle school mathematics curriculum, is using video games. Um, I'm not the only person to observe this. I'm not the only person to have said this. The sad fact is, however, that if you look at the current crop of so-called mathematics education video games, and there are maybe a dozen or so now that are floating around, they are totally terrible. I mean, they're, they're just absolutely... They're, they're worse than terrible. I mean, I think they're doing a, a lot of uh, disservice to the technology because they are setting an expectation of what the technology can, can deliver. Um, so four or five years ago, with a, a very well-funded group of, of, of experienced game developers in Silicon Valley, I started working on a project to try and do it right, to really understand how to use that technology to, do, to, to develop good educational experiences and to build video games. I mean, maybe the word video game is misleading, although I, I don't think it is. Um, but to develop video games that, um, uh, that can help people learn that middle school mathematics in, 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 in an embedded fashion. Um, we discovered two things over that five-year period. One was this was doable. And two, it was unbelievably expensive. Uh, we had a budget lined up of, I think, $50 million. I mean, it was Silicon Valley money, and, and this was sort of venture capital. It was, literally was venture capital. Um, but we burned our way through a lot of that and realized that $50 million was, it would be at least $500 million. Um, because we are not only having to invent a new technology. In fact, it wasn't really new technology. The technology was pretty well available when we began this project in, in about 19, in about 2005, I think it was, we started. Um, the technology was there. Uh, I mean, World of Warcraft really established the the kind of technologies you need, a sort of effectively fully immersive 3D environment, multi, massively multiplayer online game. That's the technology. It took Blizzard $50 million in five years to build a game that was simply a game. We wanted a game that embedded the entire middle school mathematics curriculum. But the, that curriculum is expressed in symbolic fashion. It's described in how you do things with paper and pencil. Taking those ideas and translating them into activities in a game that would be fun and engaging and successful, that is extremely slow. In the five years we were working on the project, we developed about a dozen really good experiences in the game that would teach parts of mathematics. And we realized that to cover the mathematics curriculum, middle school curriculum, we would maybe need 10 times that. Well, you take Blizzard's $50 million and you multiply that by 10 times the effort and you come up with $500 million. And we guess that that was probably what it would take to build the equivalent to World of Warcraft where the 
activities were not just killing orcs and, um, and buying and selling gold and so forth, but were doing things that would cover the entire middle school mathematics curriculum. It's doable, but it's, uh, you know, we, we learn just how, how difficult it is to, uh, to build these games that embed mathematics in, in, in a meaningful way. So you know, a moment ago, I, I was disparaging about the current crop of video games. Um, you know, in, their, in their defense, those guys had to work with very small budgets, often just a few hundred thousand dollars. They did the best they can. So I'm not disparaging the effort. I'm just saying that with the best will in the world and no matter how much expertise you've got, if you're not talking hundreds of millions of dollars of budget, you can't do it. Um, that was the other thing we learned uh, from the five years I was working on this project. Well, I want to thank you so much and wish you the best of luck of getting that funding, uh, Dr. Devlin. Well, I'm working on it. Believe me, I am working on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Devlin, it was absolutely fantastic speaking with you today. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Well, that is all there is for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. I want to once again thank my guest, Dr. Keith Devlin, for coming on the program. I want to thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback, any guests to suggest, or you want to let me know what you think about the show, make sure that you email me at samuel at acmescience.com. You can also go to acmescience.com to find a blog post with some links that are relevant to today's conversation with Dr. Devlin. And you can also stop by the forum and discuss the show with other listeners. It's acmescience.com slash forum. The theme song is from Hard and Firm. The song's title is Pi. The outro music is from SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. Finally, this is a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike licensed podcast, so please feel free to use this audio to make something else and then say that you got the audio from us. Once again, thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a fantastic week. <laughs>